Dear Heavenly Father, we are so thankful that we can gather together this evening. We thank you for the present freedoms that we enjoy and the technology that we can utilize to be able to assemble together uh, for prayer, for fellowship, and for the study in your word. Father, we pray this evening as we take this time to uh, continue our study in the subject of soteriology, and we look this evening into the doctrine of imputations, that this will be a time of uh, understanding of your word, that we will be sensitive to the illuminating ministry of God the Holy Spirit, that we will be able to retain the things that we learn and be able to apply them to our lives and to grow thereby. Father, we thank you. We ask this now in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, if you'll give me just a moment, I'm going to switch us over here to where we're going to go to live stream on Facebook, and um, and then I'll switch us here, make sure my notes are open. Okay, so it shows we're being live streamed, so it shows that we're good. I'll assume that's good, unless Dan tells me otherwise. All right, so this evening we're jumping into our continued study on the subject of soteriology. Uh, as you know, soteriology is the study of salvation. It derives from two Greek words, soter, uh, which means savior, and logos, which means the study of or a word about something. And so we are looking at, uh, uh, in our current uh, series of lessons, we're looking at biblical terminology related to soteriology. And we're looking at these uh, alphabetically. So tonight we're going to jump into imputed righteousness. Is a very, very important doctrine that relates to the subject of soteriology. Um, now, all of my audio lessons are uploaded to my website on Thinking on Scripture. They're all there in uh, mp3 format. I'm trying to record the video sessions separately, um, and uh, this morning I finished uh, the session on forgiveness uh, that we covered here a few weeks ago, so I'm a little bit behind, So, uh, but we'll catch up here in short time. All right, so let's talk about imputed righteousness. Now, uh, uh, when I was talking in past lessons, when I was talking about salvation and what happens at the moment of faith in Christ, we have to think of it uh, as being very nuanced. It, there's, there's several aspects of it. Now, one aspect has to do with subtraction, that is, the forgiveness of sins. And one of the key passages that we looked at was in Acts chapter 10, verse 43, uh, in which Peter says, Of him all the prophets bear witness, that through his name everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins. So everyone who believes in him, and this is a faith alone in Christ alone passage, uh, makes it very clear that just everyone who believes in him receives. Now the word receives there translates the Greek verb lambano, which means to take or to receive. And, uh, and what it means is that at the moment of faith in Christ, the benefits of the cross are applied to that person who believes in Christ as Savior. And so remember that when Christ was upon the cross, he died for the sins of everyone. That's called unlimited, unlimited atonement. Christ died for everyone. Uh, however, the benefits of the cross are applied only to those who believe. And so this is one of those passages that emphasizes that, that everyone who believes in him receives, and that would be at that moment, receives forgiveness of sins. 
But remember that salvation, uh, although it includes subtraction, uh, it also includes addition. And a few uh, lessons back, we talked about eternal life. We looked at John 10, 28, uh, among a number of passages uh, where Jesus says, And I give uh, eternal life to them, and they shall never perish. And we looked at the use of the Greek verb there, I give. Uh, The Greek verb is didomi, which is a present active indicative. And the present tense means it is a right now truth. It is a right now truth. And when I was growing up, I used to think that uh, that eternal life was what I would have when I left this world and entered into the eternal state. Now, I think it finds its fullest expression when we leave this world and enter into the eternal state, but it is nonetheless a right now truth because Jesus says, I give, present tense. And the active voice means the subject produces the action of the verb, and Christ is the one who gives that life. And the indicative mood is declarative for a statement of fact. And this is one of those things where the more that we advance in our walk with the Lord, the more that we take in the Word of God, we will recalibrate our thinking over time to where our thoughts will eventually align with uh, the Word of God. And we will think more uh, divine viewpoint. And that's really how we need to operate, is by divine viewpoint. Uh, I am forgiven all of my sins in a judicial sense uh, because the Word of God declares it. It's a fact. Uh, You know, how I feel is inconsequential. I know that when I break fellowship with God, when I sin, when I grieve and or quench the Holy Spirit, when I'm operating in status quo carnality, uh, all I have to do is execute 1 John 1, 9 and to confess my sin directly to the Lord. And the Word says that He is faithful, which means He always does the same thing, and He is just. Uh, to forgive me of my sins and to cleanse me from all unrighteousness. And 1 John 5, 17, John says, all unrighteousness is sin. Or all, and, and so when I confess the sins that I know about, uh, he's not only faithful and just to forgive me of those sins, but to cleanse me of all the sins that I may not know about or may have forgotten about. And so these are things that we uh, learn from the Word of God, and then we apply by faith, you see, and that's always the two-step process to the Christian life because we cannot live what we do not know. And so learning God's word necessarily precedes living God's will. Uh, But as I've mentioned before, learning it is no guarantee that we will live it. And this is why James 1.22 says, Be doers of the word, and not merely hearers only who delude themselves. Or, uh, you know, James 4.17, To him who knows the right thing to do and does not do it, to him... It is sin, and it is possible to have doctrine flowing in the stream of your consciousness. It is possible to know what the right thing is to do and not to do it. And, of course, 2 Corinthians 5.7 tells us that we, are to, that, we do not walk by, that we walk by faith and not by sight. Hebrews 10.38, God says, But my righteous one shall live by faith. And so the life of faith is when we take in the word, and we assimilate it and into the stream of our consciousness, and then we consciously apply it to our lives when appropriate. But it, it means that we are uh, properly orienting or recalibrating our thinking to align with the Word of God. And this is, this is one of those things, and this is what some of these doctrines relate to. You know, I have eternal life. I, have, I know the one in whom I have believed. I know who he is. I know what the scripture says. And I know that I have trusted in him. And so I know that based on John 10, 28 and other passages, that I have eternal life and that I will never perish. 
And when Jesus says, and they will never perish, he uses the double negative, the uhme, Greek construction, which is emphatic in the Greek. And it literally means it, 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 you can't make it any stronger. I mean, it's literally will never, never perish. And so I know these things to be true. But again, this means that I have to be able to think through these situations and I have to be able to deal with them in a biblical manner. And so tonight on the doctrine of imputed righteousness, this is one of those things that as we learn, we also learn to apply the truths of it to our lives. Now, the Bible reveals that God imputes his righteousness to the believer at the moment of salvation. Now, the word imputation itself is an accounting term, and it is used both in the Old Testament and in the New Testament. Now, biblically, there are three major imputations that relate to our standing before God. Now, if you ever study the doctrine of imputations, there's actually seven that are mentioned in the Bible. But three of these imputations specifically relate to the subject of soteriology. That is, they relate specifically to our standing or to our salvation. And so we will look at these three. Now, the first imputation is the imputation of Adam's original sin to every member of the human race. Now, Paul wrote in Romans 5.12, very interesting passage, very interesting verse here. He says, through one man, and this would be Adam, through one man, sin entered into the world, and notice, and death through sin. And so death spread to all men because all sinned. And the question arises, when did we all sin? Well, we all sinned when Adam sinned, because as goes Adam, so goes the human race. Romans 5.18 says, for through, one, for through one transgression, this would be Adam's sin, there resulted condemnation, notice, to all men, that is, to all humanity. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15.21, for since by a man, this would be Adam, came death, by a man also came the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all will be made alive. Now that prepositional phrase, in Christ, in Christo, is something that we are going to look at here in a few months when we get into the doctrine of election. And I'm still working on my notes. It's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a big topic, but I'm still, still working that one out. Um, but we're going to take some time and we're going to look at what that prepositional phrase means because Paul packs a lot into that, in, into that little phrase there. But we'll look at that in the future. But when he says here, for as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all will be made alive. And it's almost as though Paul has two lines of people standing before God. It's like at the head of the line is, is Adam and at the other head of the line is Christ. And these two lines represent two classifications of humanity. Uh, the wheat and the tares, the righteous and the unrighteous. And so either one is in Adam or one is in Christ. Now, we are all born into this world in Adam, and we are all born again at the moment of faith, and we are then transferred from being in Adam to being in Christ. That is, that is what is called an identification truth. So again, for by a man came death, and, and, and in Adam all die. Now, this means that every biological descendant of Adam is charged or credited with the sin that he committed in the Garden of Eden, which plunged the human race into spiritual and physical death. Now, by the way, this is one of those interesting things. And I remember, I think it was Colonel Thiem was the first one that actually brought it out to my attention. Uh, but he was talking, it was, it was, and I've seen it, uh, heard it with other teachers as well. 
But when you think about uh, the condemnation that, w that came upon the human race, it was, because of, uh, it was because of the decision of another person. But when you think about the righteousness that is given to us, that also is based upon the action of another person. The first person is Adam. The second person is Christ, the last Adam, as he is called in the scripture. But it's the actions of these two men that are outside of us uh, that determine, in many ways, our eternal destiny. So again, this means that every biological descendant to be in Adam is charged or credited with the sin that he committed in the Garden of Eden, which plunged the human race into spiritual and physical death. And of course, Jesus is the only exception, for though he is truly human, he was born without original sin, without a sin nature, and committed no personal sin during his time on earth. Now, Jesus uh, was, when he came into this world, truly human. And um, we know that Matthew 1.1 gives us the record of the genealogy of Jesus the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Of course, John 1, 1 uh, tells us about his uh, pre-incarnate divine nature, that in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And then John 1, 14, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, glory as of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. Uh, so he was, in fact, truly human. And you think of over in Luke, where uh, the angel... Uh, comes, and of course here I'm listing the genealogies here, but you think of over in, uh, in Luke when the angel Gabriel comes to Mary and tells her that she shall conceive in her womb and give birth uh, to a son uh, who is going to be Jesus, who is going to be named Jesus. But remember that Mary was a virgin, that Mary was a virgin, and this fulfilled the prophecy of Isaiah chapter 7 verse 14. Uh, but she was a virgin, and Jesus, remember, was supernaturally conceived in the womb of the Virgin Mary, uh, and this was to protect him, uh, his biological life, from uh, Adam's original sin and the sin nature, which is passed on uh, from, the, from the man to the children, because for by one man sin entered into the world. And this is why Mary, uh, even though she had a sin nature, because she needed a Savior too, uh, but even though she had a sin nature and was fallen, she could conceive in her womb and give birth to the perfect humanity of Christ minus the sin nature. And so Jesus was born uh, without original sin, without a sin nature. And of course, he committed no personal sin during his time on earth. Second uh, Corinthians 5.21 says that God made him, he made him who knew no sin, Hebrews 4.15 tells us that he was tempted in all ways like we are, yet without sin. 1 Peter 2.22 says that he committed no sin. And 1 John 3.5 says you know that he appeared in order to take away sins, and in him there is no sin. So Jesus was conceived and born, virgin uh, conception, virgin born, parthenogenesis is the technical term for that. And uh, Mary, remember that she was Christotokos. Uh, she was the bearer of the humanity of Christ. She was not Theotokos. She was not the mother of God. God doesn't have a mother. 
And, uh, you know, the Catholic Church and others refer to her as Theotokos, the mother of God. And that's incorrect. Uh, she's Christotokos. She's the bearer of the humanity of Christ. But, uh, but Jesus was uh, conceived supernaturally by God the Holy Spirit in the womb of the Virgin Mary. And so she was free from the contaminants of original sin and the sin nature. Uh, and then the issue was, would he go his entire life in his humanity and commit no sin? And the record of Scripture is very clear that he committed no sin. So when he went to the cross and died, he died a death he did not deserve. He died in our place, the just for the unjust, Peter tells us. Now, Adam is the head of the human race, and his fall became our fall. And this is the basis for death and for being estranged from God. Now, the sin nature and our personal sin also adds to that. It also compounds that. But I have a quote here from, uh, from R.B. Thiem, uh, Jr., and he states that our Adam's original sin refers to the initial act of willful cognitive disobedience to God committed by the first Adam, by the first man, Adam, when he violated God's mandate to not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil in the Garden of Eden. The initial human sin resulted in Adam's immediate spiritual death. Now let me pause for just a moment there. Remember that death does not mean cessation of life. That's not the biblical meaning. Death means separation. Now spiritual death is separation from God in time. The second death is separation from God in eternity. Those are people that are cast into the lake of fire. At physical death, it's the separation of the soul from the body. So when we think of death, we should think of separation, not cessation. So again here, he says the initial human sin resulted in Adam's immediate spiritual death, the formation of the sin nature, and the loss of his relationship with God. Uh, theme goes on. He says, since Adam is the physical and representative head of the human race, his corrupt sin nature is genetically passed on through procreation to all his descendants. At each person's physical birth, God imputes Adam's original sin to the sin nature, resulting in the condemnation of spiritual death. And then he says, he closes out here, he says, the only exception is the humanity of Jesus Christ, who was conceived by means of the Holy Spirit, born without the sin nature, and thus did not receive the imputation of Adam's original sin, end quote. And that was taken from uh, Thiem's Bible Doctrine Dictionary under his uh, definition of Adam's original sin. But that really becomes the first and major imputation with regard to this study of soteriology. Now, the second imputation uh, that we will look at here is the imputation of all sin to Jesus on the cross. All of our sin uh, was imputed to Christ while he was on the cross. Uh, Isaiah 53, uh, verses 4 through 6, and we spent a whole evening working through Isaiah 53 here a few weeks back. But it says here, Surely our griefs he himself bore, and our sorrows he carried, yet we ourselves esteemed him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. Notice, he was pierced through for our transgressions and was crushed for our iniquities. And the chastening for our well-being fell upon him, and by his scourging we are healed. And that has to do with the spiritual healing of a relationship. But notice verse 6, All of us like sheep have gone astray, each of us has turned to his own way, but the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. 
Verse 10 says, But the Lord was pleased to crush him, putting him to grief, if he would render himself as a guilt offering. If he would render himself. And remember that Christ was not forced to go to the cross. He was not forced to go to the cross. He willingly went and laid down his life. Uh, 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, He made him, and this would be God uh, uh, speaking about Christ, that God made Christ who knew no sin, notice this, to be sin on our behalf. To be sin uh, on our behalf. Now the flip side of that is that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Now by the way, imputation has to do with the crediting of what belongs to another person, from one person to another person. And it has to do with our sin being credited to the person or imputed to the person of Christ on the cross and him being judged in our place. Uh, 1 Peter 3.18 says that Christ also died for sins once for all, the just for the unjust, so that he might bring us to God. Uh, but he died as our substitute, and we spent an evening looking at the Greek prepositions who pair, who pair from Romans 5.8, 1 Corinthians 5, uh, 15, 3 and 4, uh, 1 Peter 3.18. We also looked at the Greek preposition anti, uh, which is also another preposition of substitution in Mark 10.45, for example, which uh, where Jesus said, the Son of Man has not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for, and for there translates the Greek preposition anti as a substitute uh, for us. And, uh, and so we've looked at those. But when we think about our sin being placed upon Christ, realize that that did not make Christ a sinner in conduct. Likewise, on the flip side, when we receive the righteousness of God, that doesn't make us righteous in conduct. It just simply means that we have received the very righteousness of God. Hebrews 2.9 tells us that Christ tasted death for everyone. For everyone. First uh, Peter two twenty one says, "For you have all, uh, for you have been called for this purpose, since Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example for you to follow in His steps. Who committed no sin, uh, nor was any deceit found in His mouth. And while being reviled, He did not revile in return. While suffering, He uttered no threats, but kept entrusting Himself to Him who judges righteously." Notice verse twenty four. And He Himself bore our sins. Notice in his own body on the cross. Now that's reference there to in his own body speaks to the humanity of Christ. It speaks to the humanity of Christ because remember that when God the Son came into this world, he came in hypostatic union. And the hypostatic union teaches that Jesus is undiminished deity combined together forever with perfect humanity. He is fully God and fully man. But it was his humanity that was on the cross bearing our sin. And, and that's why Peter says here that he himself bore our sins in his own body on the cross. And of course, 1 John 2, 2 tells us that he himself is the propitiation for our sins and not for ours only, but also for those of the whole world. That's unlimited atonement. So the imputation of all sin to Jesus on the cross. You see, God the Father judged Jesus in our place. And remember Mark 10.45, a passage I just uh, cited here a minute ago, where he says, For the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom 
for on T as a substitute for many. First uh, Peter three eighteen that Christ also died for sins once for all, the just for the unjust, so that he might bring us to God. But again, it's this idea of substitution. And when he was judged on the cross, it means that all of our sin, that our entire sin debt uh, was canceled because it was paid in full by the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, Colossians 2, 13 and 14 says, When you were dead in your transgressions and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he made you alive together with him, notice, having forgiven us all our transgressions. And so it canceled out, he says, verse 14, having canceled out the certificate of debt consisting of decrees against us, which was hostile to us, and notice he has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross, having taken it out of the way. And that goes back to the doctrine of expiation, which we covered a few weeks back as well. And you see how these doctrines begin to build on each other. You see how, like that spider web, you pull on one strand and the whole thing begins to move because these, are, these doctrines are very interconnected with each other. And, uh, and they have a tremendous impact on each other when you begin to think through these things. But nonetheless, his death on the cross, his dying in our place, canceled out our sin debt. Uh, And by the way, remember that this was voluntary. This was a voluntary imputation on the part of Christ, again, who freely went to the cross and took our sins upon himself. Uh, John 10, 11, Jesus said, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. John 10, 15. Jesus said, even as the Father knows me, and I know the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep. John 10, 17 and 18, Jesus said, for this reason the Father loves me, because I lay down my life so that I may take it again. And verse 18, you can't get any any more plain than verse 18, no one has taken it away from me, but I lay it down on my own initiative. You see, Jesus did not die because he was murdered. He laid down his life. He willingly went to the, to the cross. He could have stopped it all along the way. Uh, in fact, he tells Peter in the Garden of Gethsemane, when Peter goes to defend the Lord and pulls out a sword and cuts off the ear of the high, uh, servant of the high priest, Malchus, I think was his name. But, um, but, you know, Jesus makes the comment. He says, look, don't you know that I could call down 12 legions of angels? And, of course, that's a bit overkill, uh, but as God, the one who created everything, he could have just simply stopped it. But he didn't. He didn't. He willingly went to the cross and and bore our sin. Uh, Citing here again from theme, he says, On the cross, the justice of God the Father imputed all the sins of mankind to his beloved Son, Jesus Christ. And their theme cites again 1 Peter 2.24. Uh, which I'll read again, that he himself bore our sins in his body on the cross. So again, he says, on the cross, the justice of God the Father imputed all the sins of mankind to his beloved Son, Jesus Christ. He says this was a judicial imputation because sin has no affinity with the impeccable humanity of Christ, no home in him. To complete the judicial action, the Father's justice immediately judged every one of those sins in Christ. Our personal sins are never imputed to us for judgment. Rather, the perfect humanity of Christ was pierced through for our transgressions, taking upon himself the penalty that rightfully belonged to all men. 
He closes out, he says, this substitutionary work satisfied God's righteousness and justice and made possible our so great salvation, end quote. So again, we have here first the imputation of Adam's original sin to all humanity. Then we have all of our sin, which includes Adam's original sin, by the way, is imputed to Christ while he is on the cross. Third, we have the imputation of God's righteousness uh, to those who believe in Jesus for salvation. And this is where, at the moment of faith in Christ, we receive God's own righteousness. We receive the very righteousness of God. And so uh, passages like Romans 4, uh, 3 through 5, where Paul says, For what does the Scripture say? That Abraham believed God, notice, and it was credited to him as righteousness. Now we're about to see the Greek, the use of the Greek verb uh, logizomai uh, here shortly, but it's an accounting term. It's an accounting term, and it means that that uh, that that uh, here when it talks about when he says that he, he believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. Now, Paul's going to unpack this a little bit later here. He says, now, and this is a passage that I've hit many times before, but a little repetition never hurts. He says in verse 4, now, to the one who works, his wage is not credited as a favor, but as what is due. Now, Paul is speaking uh, uh, humanly here. And we might translate verse 4 this way. Now, to the one who works a 40-hour work week, his wage or his paycheck is not credited as a favor. And the word favor there translates the Greek noun kodos, kodos, the word we get for grace. In other words, his paycheck is not considered a, a grace gift. But what is due? You see, when I go to work each week, because I work a full-time job, uh, it's how I pay the bills, keep the lights uh, on. Uh, but when I go to work every week uh, and, I, and I put in my 40 hours, I put my employer in debt. And at the end of every two weeks, my employer alleviates that debt by transferring money from their account into my checking account, and thus we get back to zero. And then the next week, I repeat that process, and I've been doing that for almost 20 years now. Well, when my employer uh, gives me my wage or my paycheck, they're not being kind to me. That, that's not grace, you see. Uh, they're not giving me a gift. They're giving me what is due to me, what is owed to me. Now, now that's fine. And listen, God created work. God created work, and he created the six-day work week. I mean, you can go back and read Exodus 20 on that. And, uh, and you can see where work is good. It's the impediments that frustrate me. Uh, but I enjoy my work. I do. And, uh, and I enjoy even working with my hands, getting out in the yard. I uh, feel good when I do. But uh, uh, when, when I think about work, work is good and work is fine within the human realm, but we cannot take the work paradigm and bring that to God and apply that to the grace system because it doesn't work. You see, salvation operates on a grace system, not a works system. And the work system is fine when it comes to working uh, for an employer or for your own business or whatever work that you do. Work is fine. 
And God created us to work. But salvation is predicated on a grace system, not a work system. And that's why works never save. But this is what Paul is doing. He's contrasting these two things. He says, now to the one who works, his wage or his paycheck is not credited as favor. It's not a gift, but what is due. Okay, and that's fine. But in verse 5, he sets in contrast to that. He says, but to the one who does not work. To the one who does not work, and you might underscore that, highlight that, put little asterisk around that, little arrows pointed in, uh, because we cannot take the work system and bring that to God and say, okay, I'm going to do my work, now you save me. That's not how it works, okay? But to the one who does not work, but notice, but believes in him who justifies who? Not the good, the sweet, the lovely, the wonderful, but who justifies the ungodly, his faith is credited as righteousness. And so we have this issue here where we have the imputation of righteousness given to those who believe. 2 Corinthians 5.21, we have the, the second side of the issue here with regard to imputation, where it says, He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf, so that we might become the righteousness of God, notice, in him. And that prepositional phrase is very theologically rich there because it is part of our union with Christ. Now, Paul in Philippians, when reflecting on his former manner of life in Judaism as a Pharisee, he reflects back on that. And, uh, and he says, look, I'm going to throw that all away. He says in Philippians 3.8, more than that, I count all things to be loss. Uh, that is with regard to his pedigree, his former manner of life. I, I count all things to be lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing Jesus Christ my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things and count them but rubbish so that I may gain Christ. And the word rubbish there is interesting. It translates the Greek word skubalon, the Greek noun. And the translators have been very, very nice to us there. But it, the word literally means excrement or fecal matter. And so you can put in whatever word you want in there. But Paul's basically reducing all of his life and religious works to scubalon. Why? He says, so that I may gain Christ. And notice verse 9. And may be found in him. Notice, not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law. But that... That is that righteousness which is through faith in Christ. Notice the last clause. The righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith. This is, the, this is a top-down truth. This is, this is from God. That is the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith. And so this is what we're looking at here. We're looking at this imputation of God's righteousness to us. Now, the righteousness of God imputed to the believer at the moment of faith in Christ results in the believer being justified before God. Romans 3.24 says that we are justified as a gift. A gift. And a gift by its very nature means it was paid in full by the other person and is free to the recipient. We do not work for it. Now listen, good works should follow salvation, but they're never, never, never the condition of it. We are justified as a gift by His grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus. And Romans 3.28, For we maintain that a man is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. So very clear there. 
Now Moses, in Genesis 15, 6, wrote of Abraham, saying, Then he believed in the Lord, and he, that is God, reckoned it to him as righteousness. Now the word reckon there translates the Hebrew word chasab, chasab. And uh, there, it, it's the, one of the words we're going to look at here in a little bit. But it means that he reckoned it to him as righteousness. Now David, in Psalm 32, 1 and 2, uh, writes, he says, How blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. How blessed is the man to whom the Lord does not impute. And there's that same Hebrew word, uh, chasav. Uh, blessed is the man. How blessed is the man to whom the Lord does not impute iniquity and in whose spirit there is no deceit. Now Moses and David both use the Hebrew kasav uh, here, which according to Hallett, and by the way, Hallett, I, I cite from these uh, these dictionaries that I have, uh, that I had to buy when I was doing my master's and my doctorate. Uh, but Hallett is the Hebrew and Aramaic lexicon of the Old Testament. It's a very, very good uh, lexicon. And a lexicon, by the way, is just a dictionary. It's an expensive dictionary and it's a good dictionary, but it, but it is a, a good, reliable one. But, but uh, the use of the Hebrew word uh, kasav here means to impute or reckon to. Now, Moses uses the verb in a positive sense of that which God imputes to Abraham, namely righteousness. And David uses the verb negatively of that which God does not credit to a person, namely iniquity. Now, I found this quote by Dr. Alan P. Ross, who was one of the keynote speakers at the Chafer Conference a couple years back, and I love Dr. Ross. I had to use his Hebrew grammar uh, book when I was doing my uh, Master of Divinity degree, and a phenomenal book. And I have just about all the books that Dr. Ross has published, and he's, he did a commentary on Genesis that I think is hands down the best on the market. Uh, he has a commentary on Leviticus, which I have used. He has a three-volume commentary set on the book of Psalms, which I think is the best commentary set on the Psalms out there. He has a commentary on Malachi. I love Dr. Ross. His material is phenomenal. But he quotes, he comments on the meaning of the use of the Hebrew word kasav in Psalm 32 and 15.6. He says, quote, not only does forgiveness mean that God takes away the sins. Now let me pause for there because I've been talking about this. That when we think about salvation, it's not merely subtraction, it's addition. So he says here, not only does God, not only does forgiveness mean that God takes away the sins, but it also means that God does not impute iniquity to the penitent. He says here, blessed is the one to whom the Lord does not impute iniquity. Now the verb, a kasav, means to impute, to reckon, or to credit. He says here, it is the language of records or accounting. And that's exactly right. He says it is the language of records or accounting. In fact, in modern usage, the word is related to computer. Here, he says in the psalm, here the psalm is using uh, an implied comparison, as if there were record books in heaven that would record the sins. If, if the forgiven sins are not imputed, it means that there is no record of them. They are gone. And forgotten, because God does not mark iniquities, uh, Psalm uh, one thirty verse four says. Because God does not mark iniquities, there is great joy. He goes on. He says the same verb is used in Genesis fifteen six as well, which says that Abraham believed in the Lord and he reckoned it to him as righteousness. 
Now, the Apostle Paul brings that verse in Psalm 32.2 together in Romans 4 to explain the meaning of justification by faith. When people believe in the Lord, and here we have it, when people believe in the Lord, God reckons or credits them with righteousness, okay? Uh, And Paul will say the righteousness of Jesus Christ and does not reckon their sin to them. So you see, there's two sides to that. You see, he does not reckon their sin to them because that's been removed. It's been taken out. It's already been judged at the cross. You cannot pay for the same sin twice. Once you believe in Christ, you are forgiven. You receive at that moment, Lombano, you receive forgiveness of sins. And that's done. That's all sin, past, present, and future. And not only do you uh, receive the forgiveness of sins, but you also receive or have credited to your account the very righteousness of God. Now, going on in the notes here, the Apostle Paul cites Abraham's faith in God as the basis upon which he was declared righteous before him. In Romans 4, 3, saying, For what does the Scripture say? That Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. And the word credited there translates that Greek word logizomai. That's the word that we saw earlier, that I mentioned earlier. Now, Paul uses the Greek verb logizomai, which according to badag. Now, badag is the Greek equivalent of the halot. The halot is the Hebrew and Aramaic lexicon of the Old Testament. Badag is the acronym that stands for the four scholars that compiled or were the main editors for the Greek-English lexicon of the New Testament and other early Christian literature. And it's, it's, it's short for the Bauer, Danker, Arndt, and Gingrich. So I, I shorten it just to kind of let you know that's who I'm referring to. But you can see the footnote on that as well. Now, according to Badag, logizomai means, quote, to determine by mathematical process, to reckon, to calculate, frequently in a transferred sense, end quote. So it means to reckon something, to, 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 uh, to uh, when it says here, to calculate frequently in a transferred sense. In other words, it's giving somebody something that they did not possess before. You see, Abraham believed God's word, and God reckoned or transferred his righteousness to him. Now, after pointing to Abraham as the example of justification by faith, Paul then extrapolates Uh, that we are justified in the same way. Again, verses 4 and 5 there. He says, Now to the one who works, his wage is not credited or regarded, logizomai, as a favor. Again, that's not grace. But what is due to him? But to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is credited, logizomai, as righteousness. And Paul then references David, saying David also speaks of the blessing on the man to whom the Lord credits, righteousness apart from works, uh, saying, blessed are those whose lawless deeds have been forgiven and whose sins have been covered. Blessed is the man whose sin the Lord will not take into account. And there, speaking of logizomai. Now, another word that you find in the New Testament is the Greek verb elegeo. Elegeo, and this is a word that Paul used twice. He used it twice to communicate the idea of an exchange between persons, of an exchange between persons. Now, according to Badag, the Greek verb elegeo here, quote, means to charge with a financial obligation to charge the account of someone. 
Now, Paul told his friend, if you look over uh, Philemon 1.18, he told his friend uh, Philemon, uh, he said, if he has wronged you. Now, uh, Onesimus was a runaway slave that Paul sent back to Philemon uh, after his conversion, after he had uh, come to faith in Christ. And he sends him back with a letter. So Onesimus comes back, and he comes back with a letter in his hand from Paul to Philemon. And Paul tells Philemon, this is what the letter reads. He says, but if he has wronged you, okay, if he's done you any wrong, or in any way owes you anything, in other words, if he took some of your property or some of your wealth, if he has wronged you in any way or owes you anything, Paul says, charge that to my account, Charge that to my account. And the word charge there gives us our Greek word, elegeo. Now, here's the deal. Paul had not wronged Philemon. Paul had done no wrong to Philemon, nor did he owe Philemon anything. However, Paul was willing to pay for any wrong or debt that Onesimus may have incurred. Now, I have a little book, which I do recommend very highly, and you can see the footnote for that. It's called Things Which Become Sound Doctrine by J. Dwight Pentecost. Things Which Become Sound Doctrine by J. Dwight Pentecost. If you don't have that book for your library, get it. It's small, it's inexpensive, but it is very, very well written, very theologically rich, and I recommend the book very highly. Uh... But Dwight Pentecost says, quote, Paul is giving us an illustration of that which God has done for us in Christ Jesus. As the apostle assumed the debt of Onesimus and invited Philemon, who had been wronged, to charge that debt to him, so the Lord Jesus Christ took the debt that we owed to the injured one, to God, and he charged himself with our debt and set his righteousness down to our account, end quote. And I love that. It's a, it, it, it's, it's a very apt way. Uh, I, I like the way that Pentecost writes. He's, he's a very good writer. Now, going on in the notes here, in a similar way, Jesus paid for our sin so that we don't have to. And in exchange, we receive God's righteousness. Now, this idea of an exchange between persons means that one person is credited with something that is not antecedently his or her own. You see, our sin is our sin, and Christ's righteousness is his righteousness. And so when Jesus took our sin upon himself at the cross, he voluntarily accepted something that belonged to another, namely us. Jesus took our sin upon himself. Now, on the other hand, when we receive God's righteousness as a gift, we are accepting something that belonged to another, namely God. You see, it's not my righteousness, it's his righteousness. So by faith, we accept that which belongs to God, namely his righteousness. And so God's righteousness literally becomes our righteousness. God takes his righteousness and credits it or imputes it to the believer at the moment of faith in Christ. And so we receive the very righteousness of God. Now listen, it's a perfect righteousness. You can't improve upon it. You can't add to it. You can't take from it. It's a perfect righteousness. 
And so we receive that righteousness. And God, when he looks down and he sees us and Christ in us, and he sees his righteousness credited to our account and his life, because he's given us eternal life, which is his life, and he sees his righteousness in us, he approves of his righteousness. Now, remember that we talked earlier about the righteousness and justice of God as two of his attributes that work very close in tandem, because what the righteousness of God requires the justice of God executes. What the righteousness of God requires, the justice of God executes. And what the righteousness of God approves of, the justice of God blesses. And what the righteousness of God rejects, the justice of God condemns. Now, the righteousness of God approves of the righteousness of God. And so because we have received the righteousness of God, we are then open to many, many blessings that can come our way because we have received the gift of righteousness. But what the righteousness of God rejects, and the righteousness of God rejects human effort. The righteousness of God rejects human works. And human works will never save. Human works will get you a one-way ticket to hell. That's what it will get you. Because if we were to take all of our righteous deeds, put them into a bag, bring them to God, and demand the trade-in value, they would be worth one filthy rag, according to Isaiah 64, 6, which literally reads a menstrual rag. And so if we brought our two cents to God, God would hand us our two cents back and say, go to hell, because that's exactly what our two cents will get us, because good works have no saving value, none. Our good works do not save us. And so what the righteousness of God rejects, i.e. human works, the justice of God will condemn. And so uh, that is why, that is why we receive the very righteousness of God as a gift. And so God's righteousness becomes our righteousness. Now, Paul references the exchange that occurred at the cross when Jesus died for our sin. Again, 2 Corinthians 5.21, that, that he made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf. So that, and here's the trade-off, so that we might become, notice, the righteousness of God in him. And he personally spoke of the righteousness in Philippians 3, 9, which is through faith in Christ. Again, the righteousness which comes from God. This is a top-down truth. The righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith. And so again, at the moment of faith in Christ, we receive forgiveness of sins. And we receive the gift of righteousness. Romans 5, 17 calls it the gift of righteousness. Now, once we receive God's righteousness, we are instantaneously, at that moment, justified in God's sight. We are instantaneously and once and forever justified in God's sight. It is the greatest, it is one of the greatest blessings that we could have. And, uh, and the fact that we receive it as a gift, and again, Romans 5.17 calls it the gift of righteousness. It is God's righteousness that has been gifted to us. And again, that's uh, over there in Romans 5.17. Let me back up and see if I can find that real quick here. Um, yeah, because over in Romans 5.17, <clears throat> again here, he calls it the gift. Notice here, he calls it the gift of righteousness. And, uh, and the word gift there translates the Greek noun dereo, uh, which again is just commonly translated as a gift. It's something that is provided by another, free of charge, no strings attached, given to us. And it's not in any way predicated upon the beauty or worth of the object because we were not and we are not 
and will not be lovely in the sight of the Lord. We are helpless. We are sinners. We are separated from God. Um, and we have no way to, to save ourselves, none whatsoever. But when we think of the cross, we think of what God did for us. Salvation, by the way, is never what we do for God. Salvation is what God has done for us through the person and the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. But it's never what we do for God. And it, it just blows my mind when I talk to people and I say, okay, well, you know, if I were to pose the question, if you were to die today, uh, would God let you into heaven? I hear, and I hear people say, I hope so. I hope he lets me in. And then I have to, I'm screaming inside, but I, I, I have to keep cool. Got to play poker, right? You got to be calm. The Lord's bond servant must not be quarrelsome, right? So I say, well, well, why would God uh, not let you in? Well, I just hope I've been good enough. Oh, I just want to, uh, you can see I have no hair because <laughs> I pull it out half the time. Uh, but it just, and, I, and, I, and these are people that I have explained the gospel to 50 times. I had this happen here a few years ago. I explained the gospel to this lady, I bet, 50 times, and she claims to be a Christian. And then one day I was just, we were passing by, and I just kind of lobbed that question out there, and she, well, I don't know if I'll get in or not. I was just like, what? What? What are we talking about? And then when I asked her and kind of probed a little deeper, it came out this, well, I hope I'm good enough. And I'm just like, what have we been talking about for the last two years, you know, and it just scratches my head. So I just, anyway, I don't want to get sidetracked on that. So the point is, is that when we think about salvation, again, it's never what we do for God. And listen, uh, mankind can always come up with some system of works whereby we earn our way into heaven. And that's religion. And religion is man by man's efforts trying to win the approval of God. Religion is man by man's efforts trying to win the approval of God. I'm talking about the worldly religions. But uh, salvation is never by works. It's not by our works. It's by the work of Christ and the work of Christ alone. And he gets all the glory. We get the benefit. We get the blessing. But it's all because of what he accomplished for us. Uh, Now, some might raise the question, and I've actually had this thrown out there, how can a holy God justify unworthy sinners. Well, first of all, the unworthy sinners cannot, by any means, given no amount of time, ever justify themselves. So somebody has to do the work. But they throw out the question, how can a holy God justify unworthy sinners? How can he give something to someone who deserves the opposite? The question then becomes, how is this just? Well, the answer is found in Jesus and what he accomplished for us at the cross. You see, at the cross, God judged our sin as his righteousness requires and saves the sinner as his love desires. So again, at the cross, God judged our sin as his righteousness requires and saves the sinner as his love desires. You see, at the cross, Jesus voluntarily died a penal substitutionary death. Penal, he bore the penalty for our sins. Substitutionary, he died in our place. The just for the unjust. So at the cross, Jesus voluntarily died this penal substitutionary death. He willingly died in our place and bore the punishment that was rightfully ours. Now, one could make the case that it would not be just if Jesus were forced upon the cross, if he were forced to go there against his will, if he was forced to go there as an innocent person and to die in our place. But that's not the case. The case is is that he voluntarily 
went to the cross. Again, John 10, 18, he said, no man takes my life from me, but I lay it down of my own initiative. And so Jesus voluntarily died this death. He willingly died in our place and bore the punishment that was rightfully ours. And so our guilt became his guilt. Our shame became his shame. And the result of the cross is that God is forever satisfied with the death of Christ. God is forever satisfied with the death of Christ. So there's no additional sacrifice or payment needed because Jesus paid it all. And so when we believe in Jesus, we are forgiven all of our sins. Again, John 10, 43, of him all the prophets bear witness that through his name, everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins. Ephesians 1, 7, in him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, and this is according to the riches of his grace. It's because of who he is and not because of who we are. And Christ Uh, We were redeemed through the blood of Christ. And so the blood of Christ has been shed. The blood of Christ is the coin of the heavenly realm that paid our sin debt. And it paid our sin debt in full. It's the only currency that heaven will accept as payment for our sin debt. And Christ, uh, we are redeemed through the blood of Christ. Okay? And so we have, as a result, the forgiveness of sins. And so when we believe in Jesus, we are forgiven all of our sins, and then God imputes his righteousness to us. And again, the Apostle Paul calls it the gift of righteousness. It's a, such a, it, listen, it's a marvelous gift. It's one of many, many things that the believer receives at the moment of faith in Christ. We receive the adoption of sons. We receive forgiveness of sins. We receive eternal life. We are transferred from being in Adam to being in Christ. Colossians 1.13 says we are transferred from Satan's domain of darkness into the kingdom of the beloved son. We become children of the living God. We become brothers and sisters to the king of kings and lord of lords. And we enter into the royal family of God. And as we begin to grow into these truths, we begin to develop within us a personal sense of destiny that is tied to the infinite personal creator God. And listen, there's no better life that can be lived than the life which is lived as a Christian who fully understands his or her position in Christ and begins to live it out. It is simply a marvelous life. And all of the blessings that we receive, Ephesians 1.3 says that God has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenlies. And we have been endowed with a portfolio of spiritual assets that simply staggers the imagination to really begin to think on these things. And it's just simply amazing to unpack these. We have a spiritual gift uh, as part of our uh, many blessings. Again, I covered this a few months back, so I'm just kind of rehashing off the top of my head. But again, to be clear, God's righteousness is not earned. Rather, it is freely gifted to us who believe in Jesus as our Savior. Now, it is sometimes difficult for some to accept this biblical teaching, and the reason is that our behavior does not always reflect our righteous position, our righteous standing before God. But here's the point, is you have to understand your position in Christ before you can fully live out the performance of the Christian life. Paul in Ephesians 1.3 follows a typical pattern of being didactic, of being educational. And in Ephesians 1-3, through 3, he talks about the many grace blessings that are bestowed upon us as Christians in Christ, in Christo. He uses the prepositional phrase in Christ or in him probably about two dozen times. 
And Ephesians 1 through 3, Paul is basically saying, know this, know this, know this. And then you get to Ephesians 4, 1, which says, therefore. In other words, all of this doctrinal truth that you have taken in in Ephesians 1 through 3 now finds application. And Ephesians 4, 5, and 6 is do this, live out Christ. And what Paul is doing in Ephesians 4, 1 and 2, he says, therefore, walk, walk in a manner worthy of your calling. In other words, you are a child of God. You are a brother or sister to the King of Kings, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Act like it. Stop thinking like a peasant and start thinking about your new position in Christ and conduct yourself. Let your performance be equal to your position. But so often people jump to the, to the, to the practice. Oh, this is how we live it out when really we need to understand who we are in Christ. And this is some of the truths related to our position in Christ. And so sometimes people wrap their, have struggled with this because they have difficulty understanding their, uh, their position in Christ. However, and I'll close out with this, God's word defines reality. It is divine viewpoint. It is divine revelation. And so when we take in the word of God, we are able to recalibrate our thinking according to the standard, the norm of God's word, which, is, which literally defines reality. And so we are justified in his sight because his righteousness has been credited to our account. And we accept this by faith because the word of God reveals it and we understand it and we have trusted in Christ. And so we accept it by faith. And so it becomes that reality. Now, the righteousness of God is, in fact, credited to us who have trusted in Jesus as our Savior. And this becomes, again, a positional identification truth, a very, very important doctrine in the Word of God. And it is one of these things that I think should be uh, studied uh, as we advance. And I've taken the time to unpack it here in short order. We could spend more time on this, but we have other doctrines. And so I'm trying to cover each one of these in one hour session. But I I think I've communicated enough of this to hopefully drive the point into your thinking. So hopefully this this has been made clear to you. All right, my voice is about shot. So I'm going to close it out here uh, with that. Uh, Now, do we have any questions over tonight's session? Any questions over tonight's session? Judd. Not a question, but a comment. I'm an accountant, so I really love the accounting in Scripture, and there's a lot of accounting in Scripture. I always say God is the master accountant. (laughs) Yes. Love that. At the Great White Throne Judgment. What happens at the Great White Throne Judgment? Mm-hmm. Uh, books are opened and another book is opened. There's three books that are open, and God is the perfect master accountant. He's All of his accounts are reconciled, <clears throat> and all of his entries are perfect, and you're going to be judged from those accounts mm-hmm. if, <clears throat> right, this transaction is that God has debited Christ's account and credited our accounts. Mm-hmm. So we've gotten a bill that we can't pay. Right. God has taken that amount that we can't pay and transferred it from Christ's account to our account. And all we have to do is accept that payment. 
if we don't accept that payment, that's when you end up at the judgment seat of Christ and God opens the books and you get judged from the things written in the book and you can't pay the bill. So you go to the lake of fire. Man, I love that. Thank you so much for sharing that. And as an accountant, of course, this language would resonate with you probably more than just about anybody here. So thank you for sharing that. That was very, very well put. I love that. Thank you. John? Uh, John. Um, I don't know that you need to answer this right away, but I just wanted to make you aware of this. This was very timely for me because in pre-grace circles, there are people that are pushing against the idea of Adam being the federal our federal headship. Right. They want to say that people are born almost like innocent. And I, I'm trying not to present a strong straw man here, but I'm not. I don't get exactly the <clears throat> position, so I'm going to do it the best I can. But they're born innocent, and they don't become sinners until they become an age of accountability and actually know that they're sinning. Right. Um, they think God is unfair if it's not that way. And have even gone as far as to call the federal headship view a false teaching. And, you know, it's just it's getting carried away. And I'm really concerned about this issue because I think it's going the wrong direction. And, uh, you know, they've said it's not biblical and that, that it's false teaching. So I'm just making you aware of that because it's getting more prevalent and um you know, I just am concerned about it. Yeah, thank you for bringing that up. And I've actually run into that. And there are some people who would say, well, okay, Adam's original sin uh, is not a biblical doctrine. I, th- I think the weight of evidence in Romans 5 and other places makes it quite clear. Uh, but then one has to say, and I, and I understand some of their line of reasoning, um, even if you were to remove Adam's original sin from the equation of all this, you still have the fact that we have personal sin and a sinful flesh, which in and of itself can never merit uh, uh, our way to heaven. And so you still, at the end of the day, have to accept imputed righteousness. You still have to accept that as a core feature of our salvation, without which we will not get into heaven. Um, But, you know, when I'm addressing this with other people, I say, well, you know, uh, then for whose sin does the baby die? Because uh, all, you know, everybody dies, including newborn babies. And, uh, well, they don't die for their own sin. For whose sin do they die? Well, they die for Adam's sin. Because for by one man, sin entered into the world and death through sin. And so death contaminates all humanity. And uh, even babies die and not for their own sin but because of the sin of Adam. But yes, I know where you're going with that, John, and I've actually heard that. And, uh, and uh, yeah, I've kind of gone back and forth, but it is something that is, uh, seems to be uh, floating a little bit more in free grace circles. So anybody else have a question Joe. or comment? Joe. Joe, go ahead, buddy. Yeah, um, your first um, um, was the, <clears throat> of imputation was about the, um, the initial human sin way from Adam. Mm-hmm. And uh, you quoted um, in the theme there, and he was saying that God imputes Adam's original sin to the sin nature. I was hoping that you could comment on that. Um, is God 
God actually does that imputing of the original sin? Well, that becomes a, an issue that um, has kind of floated back in circles. Uh, one line of reasoning is that God is the one who does that, that he imputes Adam's original sin. But the other, uh, but that's predicated on Adam being the federal head of the human race. There is another view of Adam's original sin, which is called the seminal head. You see, and to say that Adam is the seminal head of the human race means that that the sin nature and Adam's original sin is passed on seminally through procreation, and so that view is also held, and uh, and there are differing views on that. Uh, you know, I generally lean in the direction that God is the one who credits uh, that sin uh, to the uh, life of each person; that that is passed on uh, in that way. Now, you know, can I be dogmatic on that? I, I don't know that I could find any particular passage of Scripture um, that, uh, that would make that case. I do think that the issue that Paul brings up in Romans 5 and 1 Corinthians 15, I think are very, very compelling, that being in Adam and having that identification of Adam's original sin, because that's Paul's whole point, you know, from Romans 5, 12 and uh, forward, uh, is he's talking about Adam's sin being passed on, and Romans 5.19 is very clear when he says that it results in condemnation. And so because of that one sin that Adam committed, there resulted condemnation. Now, whether that comes directly from God federally uh, due to federal headship or whether that comes seminally through procreation, I think, I think the argument that Adam's original sin is transmitted, uh, I think, is, is an argument from Scripture. Um, I don't know if that answered your question or not. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I just, I, I've never heard of, of God imputing. <clears throat> I've always heard the other view. Right, of... right. And I think, you know, I could be wrong, but I think Dr. Lewis Berry Chafer, I have to go back and check my notes, but I think Dr. Lewis Berry Chafer held to the seminal view, but I'm not 100% on that. Thank you very much. Mm-hmm. Susan, you had a question or comment yeah um theme used to teach uh that it was that the sin nature is part of the body and that it was right that you know because jesus didn't have a father he didn't have an old sin nature so mm -hmm. it wasn't it wasn't uh inherited by his human body right so theme used to teach that and that's not really then an imputation that is something you inherit because you are inherently born flawed by the results of what sin did to creation in general. Correct. So yeah. there's that point of view. Yeah. No, I agree with you on that. And that's where the language um, sometimes you really try to, as somebody who tries to think theologically and biblically, I try to keep my language as theologically tight as possible. I was having a discussion with somebody recently uh, because, you know, the issue of the sin nature residing in the believer. Well, some people don't like the term sin, sin nature. They, they prefer the term sinful flesh because the term nature is not actually employed in the scriptures, whereas flesh, sarks, is. Uh, but you're correct that with regard to the sin nature or the sinful flesh, if you want to use that language, I don't mind the term sin nature because whatever it is, it's sinful and it is natural to us. <laughs> so I, I employ that language. Um, but at the end of the day, it speaks of that proclivity 
that we are all born with, uh, that we come into this world with, that naturally operates in defiance of God and his authority and all legitimate systems of authority that are on this earth. And when a child begins to develop, the sin nature quickly comes into full view because you do not have to teach a child to sin. The default setting is that of selfishness and sinfulness, and they very quickly learn to lie and to manipulate and to, right, and to adopt all sorts of, they're very, very quick. And you have to teach them just the opposite. Well, that's the proclivity. That's the sin nature or the sinful flesh. Now, the Bible uses the term flesh, uh, and so I don't have a problem going with that. But that's correct. And that comes from the father to the child. And so the child comes born uh, with that preset proclivity to operate independently of God and his authority and all systems of legitimate authority that he has ordained among the human race. And so, yeah, I, I agree with that. Yeah, so I don't, I don't see it so much as an imputation. Mm-hmm. Uh, I guess you could say it's an imputation. But to me, it's, it's part of the fall that we're all flawed. And if we're, if we're born from flawed individuals, then we will also be flawed. Correct. Correct. Yeah, it is transmitted. Uh, and that might be another good word to throw in there. It is transmitted. Yeah. Uh, and it is passed along, right? Because a flawed person is going to bring into the world a flawed person. I remember listening to one of the audio lectures by Dr. Lewis Berry Chafer some years ago, uh, which he was teaching a course at Dallas Seminary. And he was talking about somebody he ran into who claimed that the sin nature had been eradicated uh, from them. And, and that teaching has been going around for, for decades, in fact, for probably centuries. Uh, and there will be people that will teach. And, and he had a debate with this guy. Well, it was a discussion that turned into a debate. But basically, uh, Chafer was pointing out that, look, if you don't have a sin nature and your wife doesn't have a sin nature, as you claim, then logically your children should not be born with a sin nature. And, and then he said, where are your children? Let me talk to them. <laughs> and, of course, the little children were there, and they were little sinners, and, you know, that, uh, that proved his point. <laughs> but you're right, because, you know, fallen people are going to give birth to fallen people. So here's, here's my point, is that even if we wrestle with the doctrine of the imputation of Adam's original sin, even if we wrestle with that one, okay, uh, I don't think anybody questions uh, the fact that we have a sinful flesh, that we produce personal sin, and very, very, very clearly the doctrine of the imputation of God's righteousness to us as key to the issue of soteriology is very, very important because without that gift of righteousness being credited to our account, being, uh, being uh, you know, deposited to us, uh, without that... We would, not, we would not be able to spend eternity with God in heaven. And so even though we may kind of question you know, the first doctrine, I think the second and third are, are, in my mind, very, very clear and very, very straightforward. Thank you. Thank you for bringing that up. I love that. Anybody else have any other questions or comments? We're good? Okay, well, let's uh, wrap it up with a word of prayer then, and we'll gather back next week. So let's pray. 
Dear Heavenly Father, we are so thankful that we can call you, Father, having trusted in your Son as our Savior. And we are thankful for this time of fellowship this evening and to have these uh, sorts of discussions and to even wrestle with some of these things that are set forth in your Word. I think of when Peter spoke of the writings of Paul as being difficult to understand, and this coming from a man that I find difficult to understand. And it is true that sometimes the scriptures are difficult for us to understand, and we do wrestle with these things. But there are some things that are very, very clear. And one of those things is that when we trust in Christ as our Savior, we are promised eternal life, and we receive forgiveness of sins, and we receive the gift of righteousness and many, many other blessings. And Father, we just pray this evening as we go forth, as, uh, as we finish up our, our session together, that this will be a time in which your word uh, will be deeply seated in our thinking, that it will become integrated into our everyday thoughts, and that we will learn to see ourselves from the divine perspective as those who have received the gift of righteousness. Father, we thank you for these things. We pray that we will be challenged by them as we go forth. We ask this now in Christ's name. Amen. Reverend. Amen.